Turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John 13 and verse 14 is where we will start out today. We're going to be wrapping up our study of the one another statements of the New Testament. And the issue that we're looking at today is the issue of being selfless towards one another. Selfless. We'll look at the issue of serving one another, caring one another. There's a lot of overlap, but what does it mean to be others-centered? It is so unlike our human nature to think about others ahead of ourselves, right? Default is about me. Christ was selfless. To leave heaven to come to earth, here, sinful people, dirt, selfless. The epitome of his selflessness was, of course, the cross where he died for our sins with none of his own. Selfless. So when we think about being a believer in Christ who follows Christ, it's a pretty probing issue to think, Am I really Christ-like? The core issue, the core relational issue is, am I others-centered, selfless, like Christ? So we look at the example of Christ as we look at a key uh, passage that says, uses that little term that we've followed through the New Testament, one another. Chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus says to the disciples, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Wash one another's feet. What is this about? Well, not too long ago we studied this passage and we realized that Jesus is talking to the disciples the night before he goes to the cross. You could say that it seems like Jesus was kind of on a deadline to transform these 12 men from selfless or selfish to selfless. It was the night before the cross. And these 12 would be his chosen leaders, these common Galileans, who were going to be leading the most powerful, long-lasting movement on earth. God had sent God the Father had sent Jesus, his Son, to redeem, pay for the sins of the whole world, and these men were going to be responsible to make disciples of people throughout the earth. These men would be responsible to head the family, the church, the body of Christ, and equip them to make disciples throughout this now two, cent- two millennia. Were these men ready? It seemed almost that the timing of God's plan was all off because the very men who were to lead the church as servants were actually still squabbling like selfish little boys. In Luke 22, the same context, the same night, uh, we find that during this meal, this last supper that Jesus had with the disciples, they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And it was within the last week, it seems, that the mother of James and John, two of the disciples, 
had sidled up to Jesus and made the case for why her boys should sit on the right and the left whenever this kingdom thing happened that Jesus was going to lead. And the others heard about it and the others were furious. So I think actually there was a bit of tension in the room when they gathered for the Lord's Supper. Kind of like the, the family gathering when everybody knows who's not talking to who. And here they came. Normally in that culture, when you come in from uh, dirt-only streets and populated by animals and everything else, so people washed their feet before they would come in and have a meal, especially because you would, you would kind of recline for a meal, a low table, and you kind of sat like this, and so your feet were somewhere as close to someone else's face. And so the lowest person on the social ladder, some probably young boy or girl, would wash the feet because there's just something you know, lowly about that. But that night, no one did it. It seems that evidently they just ate with dirty feet, something really awkward for them, because no one was going to acknowledge that they were the servant. And then chapter 13 in John tells us that Jesus, after supper, took off his outer cloak, laid it aside, wrapped a towel around his waist, and then went to each selfish man, one after the other, washed their feet, dried it with a towel. Try it sometimes, and just see how that literal act feels. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that that is what I am. So, yes, I am your superior. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Can you capture that attitude? I actually don't think Jesus was teaching foot washing as a, a prescribed ordinance of the church, though I certainly respect churches who do. I think Jesus was describing a radical attitude that was to characterize everything the disciples were to do in leading the church. Others-centered. There's a, there's a complete shift of the mindset to care more about others than yourself. We don't naturally serve our wife, wife's needs or our husband's. We don't naturally uh, think about on a team effort, whether it's a sport or work or church, what, are, what, what, what would be best for you. We don't naturally give up the best parking spaces. We don't naturally you know, choose the... Lo- When the diaper needs changing, no one's really racing for it. Few, at least, are racing for the privilege. Wash one another. That's that's an attitude. It's a mind shift that Jesus is calling his followers to. Are we followers of Christ? The Apostle Paul wasn't in the room. He would meet Jesus later on the Damascus Road, but he followed his example of service and said this, turn with me to Galatians now, Galatians 5, verse 13. If washing one another's feet was an attitude, then what would be the actions that would follow? Because actions always come from attitudes. Galatians 5, 13 
Paul says, you, my brothers, writing to really a group of churches in that region called Galatia, you, my brothers, were called to be free. That's been a theme. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, here it is, serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. So he has been addressing the issue that uh, you are free in Christ, but uh, he says you could misuse freedom and, and consider it a license to do whatever you want. So don't, don't use it to indulge your sinful nature. Instead, serve one another in love. So he is saying that in some sense, serving one another in love is the opposite, the antidote to bondage. What bondage has been in mind? The bondage has been that the people of Israel were obligated to hundreds of instructions, laws in the Old Testament. And the problem in in the Galatian churches was that there are these false teachers, Judaizers, people who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, but they said that to really be saved, you had to also do this and this and this and this. All the Old Testament laws were still in force. And the point of Paul has been, no, when Christ came, He fulfilled not only the sacrifice of the Old Testament, he fulfilled the the illustrations, the purposes of all the other laws, laws that were good, laws that helped keep people holy and and healthy. And so now those were things that helped people's relationships. Now all those laws were actually fulfilled by Christ. And so the Judaizers, maybe like many Christians, were were operating out of fear. Well, what's going to keep us in line if we don't have all these laws? He says, rather, serve one another in love. And actually he said, this isn't a brand new idea. Look at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. This comes from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, love will accomplish what the law cannot. Serve one another in love. The rules are gone. So what will guide believers' behavior? It's an issue that Christians argue about today. There are written or unwritten rules. There are expectations, different churches, different branches, different this. But it's like if you're a Christian, then you do it. And he's not talking about things that are clearly biblical, not absolutes, not clearly biblical principles, but expectations that have to do with with preferences and other non-essentials. What will guide behavior? Because many of those are are well-intentioned. In love, serve one another. What does that look like? What does it look like in love to serve one another? That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. It translates a principle. The Holy Spirit will He will translate a principle into attitudes and actions. Let's take a look at uh, a little bit of the argument of Paul here. How God replaced rules with loving and serving. The Old Testament, they had counted them, the rabbis had, had 613 laws. The New Testament says, in love, serve one another. Pretty simple, isn't it? Quite a, try to trans, quite a transfer. So the questions that we have to ask, am I loving and am I serving? 
Love has to do with our motivation. Am I truly concerned for what others need? We say we care. We want to appear caring. This goes deeper and says, no, do you actually care? Then the second question, am I serving? Am I actually meeting the needs of someone? Do We offer to help many times because that's the culturally right, right thing to do. But have you ever had that nagging feeling, but I hope they don't ask, hope they don't need me? <laughs> what does that tell you about yourself? Oh, if you, let me know if you... Oh, <laughs> Tuesday, huh? <laughs> Even the good things we do. Have you, have you thought clearly about your motives? Is it love that is motivating the good things you do? Maybe it was because I was at the Brewer game and they were selling raffle tickets, but I was thinking about the concept of raffle tickets. Often raffle tickets are sold to benefit a good cause, right? So I think the way it works is, you know, you buy a $2 ticket and a dollar goes to the cause and a dollar goes to the jackpot. So why would a person buy a raffle ticket? If it's for the cause, just give to the cause. You give twice as much that way too. You write a check to the cause. Or was it about the jackpot? Something maybe a little bit deeper. Why does a person serve in a church ministry? Or some community service something? I don't know why you do. But I think we should be thinking about our motives. Because if we're honest, there is a tainted motive in most things we do. That doesn't mean we should quit doing them. It means we must continually address our motives. We can do a ministry. Oh, that'll be fun. My friend is doing it. I'll do it because, you know, I, I, I really like the affirmation when I do it. People will see it. Or I really feel good about myself when I serve. Or I really feel guilty when I don't. Do you see something about all those thoughts? It's all about us. Pastors, too. You know I get paid for this, don't you? Motives. What do we do that is untainted by self? Do we, do we really do what we do that is good? And there's so much good that is done. Because we are motivated by the love of Christ and therefore love others. If you don't struggle with motives, you're either lying or not breathing because every believer thinks it through. Now, what if we don't pursue? What if we don't pursue in love, serve one another? What if that isn't like our goal? Verse 15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out and you'll be, or you'll be destroyed by each other. <laughs> if we don't consistently address this serving one another in love, we will begin attacking each other. Because self always goes there. I, I'm acquainted with a, a couple different churches out in other states that are struggling with division. People are taking sides. Good people are hurting and being hurt. 
It happens when we are not selflessly serving one another. Does this, is this something that comes naturally? No. Do you know what the next section of chapter 5 is all about? Live by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Uh, the deeds of the flesh, you know, everything from jealousy, fits of rage, immorality, all that. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. This is actually impossible. And yet, the Holy Spirit is producing selfless living. The miracle of selfless living over and over and over and over. And I bet you, you can think of a Pretty many people in your life, many of them in this church, who are consistently selfless enough that it almost seems normal. Right? That is the work of the Spirit of God. And that's what he's calling us to. We go from the serving one another issue to, again, going to the core, caring for one another. If you want to keep a bookmark here, you could. We'll be back in a few moments, but go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, uses our little key phrase, one another. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. Equal concern, the same care for, and the term is this one another. So there's an attitude of the whole body people who actually care about the other person. The context is where the human body is compared to the people of uh, believers who are the, the people of the body of Christ. And uh, there's a little bit of humor, I think, even in the way Paul writes, verse 15. If the foot should say, like foot speak, uh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. So each part of the body, the point is, belongs to the other and they have to work together. It's, it's hard to tie your shoes without your hands. It's hard to find your shoes without your eyes or your glasses. Paul seems to even have humor in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, just think about the picture. That might be the inspiration for that little minion in uh, Despicable Me. If the whole body were an eye, would the, where would the sense of hearing be? So he goes on to say, you can't, you can't say I don't need you, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. You don't know everybody at Open Door Bible Church, but you actually need them in some sense. For, for the body to be hitting on all cylinders, everyone is needed. Someone paints the room. Someone teaches your children. If, if some worship song uh, ministered to you today, it's because this group of people you saw up here came at 4 o'clock yesterday, practiced, and then served at three services on the weekend. Last Sunday morning, I was driving up from uh, Missouri and uh, listening to Pastor Nate speak here, same time you were. 
For there to be a Facebook live broadcast takes money to buy equipment and people with skills and gifts and time to make it happen. Everything is part of the body functioning. Thursday, uh, Thursday night at our, at our board meeting, we, uh, some, some, people, some of the guys are sharing some, some shepherding opportunities. This week there was some teaching. As Pastor Jim was teaching a class. There's been conversations of encouragement and affirmation and notes written. This is the body functioning for the benefit of others. Other-centeredness. And that's what brings us to verse 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts, that's us, should have this equal care, mutual care for one another. That's the core attitude. Do I care about what others are going through? When we started this series, and throughout it really, we've been talking about the need to be connected to one another. Because none of this happens if you keep your distance. None of this happens, frankly, if you just walk in and sit and walk out. That's not where the one another happens. Very little of it. Some of the teaching, admonishing, yeah. But So we've talked about adult Bible fellowships. We've talked about other small group type ministries where you can actually get to know somebody. And so if it seems like there's a theme of like, Going to an ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship. Here's why. As you think about your involvement in an ongoing, consistent group like that, it's not for your benefit. It's not because you like the teacher or teachers, or the material they're covering, or the particular format, or even if that you particularly like that set of people, though I hope all of those things are true. The reason is that you would know people to care for. And that there would be people then who could care for you. But first of all, that you need to know people to care for them. What does that look like? Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Or as Jesus said, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Who shares what you're going through, whether you enjoy it greatly or are really hurting? That's what selflessness is, taking interest as Paul said in, in Philippians, not just interest in your own things, but taking interest in others. So that if you're really happy about a blessing, that, that uh, you, you don't just tell Jesus, you can tell someone with skin on who rejoices with you. And, and I really know that God is, is doing this over and over. People who are sharing sufferings, sharing blessings, And the amazing thing is then that God brings it back to you, not always from the same people, not always from the people you wish. But there's somehow this thing of not paying it forward, but it's like you're paying it upward and and God takes care of it. And there's this mutual concern, care for one another. Go back to Galatians. Now chapter 6, 
So in chapter 5, we're saying, in ser- Paul is saying in love, serve one another. Here's an example of another one another. Chapter 6, verse 2. Carry or bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens fulfills the law. See, it's that saying, so the Old Testament law was you better do this, you better do this, you better better not do this, this, and this. That only exposed our failure and our sin, but the law of Christ replaces that where we, in love, serve one another like bearing one another's burdens. Now, you can apply that broadly. We should care about, just like 1 Corinthians 12, 26, care about how someone else is suffering. It can be applied broadly, but I really wonder in this context if it was something very specific. Look at verse 1 that precedes it. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. So the burden that needs to be shared as someone else helps you carry it would be your own struggle with sin, being caught in a sin, or someone else is caught in a sin. There is no greater burden than to be bearing the burden of private, isolated bondage to sin. That's a heavy burden. We're actually supposed to bear that stuff with one, for one, with one another. Is there someone you know well enough that you would share that or that you would minister to that you could talk about the things, areas of sin in which you're caught? You care about someone deeply enough. That's for pastors, no? Who's it for? You who are what? Spiritual. So what does it mean to be spiritual? Look at the last part of chapter 5. He's just been talking about it. What does it mean to be spiritual? Does it mean you have a position? Does it mean you're a pastor, a missionary, counselor? To be spiritual is to live by the Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in you. You're a growing believer yielding to the Spirit of God. You are equipped to help someone struggling with sin. But be careful, lest you be tempted. That could uh, mean a couple of things. Tempted to fall into the same sin, or maybe tempted to be harsh or critical. Maybe it's tempted to be arrogant or proud. Glad I don't have that problem. It's not clear, but we have to approach it with a humility. We have to approach it also with, it says, gentleness. Restore him gently. The word restore was used in the fishing industry in the first century of the mending of nets fixing a net that's been torn how, how do you fix a, a net let's say you have, have a tangled net no it's like Christmas lights right or a ball of yarn you got a problem with you, you very carefully and gently untangle this it's, that's the picture that we would when we're helping someone in struggle you don't attack you don't, tell me you help bear the burden first you have to get to know them because no one will share that burden 
if they don't know you and thus trust you. This is calling us to long-term close relationships in concentric circles, really. It's the body of Christ, regularity and meeting each other so we start to visually know some people. And then, and then you, you get to know some people better because you're in a group. And then you find a couple of close friends because some of these things are very close and personal. It's not, it's not all supposed to be a prayer request on the prayer chain. But bear one another's burden. Someone has said a burden shared is half a burden. And I bet you've experienced that. If you, where you just kind of unload, get something off your chest, and just the fact that somebody else knows what's happened... It is half a burden. And God uses the body that way. James 5. James 5.16 contains two more one another statements paired together in a single sentence that help us describe this selfless living mindset. The context is about people who are suffering The context is about praying for those who are suffering. Chapter 5, verse 16. Let's read that verse and then go back to the context. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Then it gives the example of Elijah and his answered prayer. So the context is prayer. But the specific statements are to confess our sins... The term technically is this one another phrase, all alone. Uh, Confess your sins to one another and then pray for one another. Pray for one another about what? Well, healing is in the context, but so is sin. Confess your sin and pray for one another. Go back to the beginning of the paragraph, really, verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? Uh, or the word is like suffering and so it's again a broad term all kinds of suffering there could be what should you do? pray you're probably pretty good at that if, if you're going through something hard you call out to God individual prayer perhaps is in mind is anyone happy? let them sing praises so something great has happened oh, give God the credit and thank you Lord so that's like the first step is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins one to another. Okay, so that's another step besides praying for yourself. Ask the elders to pray. That's appropriate. We, we have done that. The anointing with oil is interesting, and again, I respect those who believe this is to be a, a regular kind of a ceremony. Uh, I tend to believe it's, it's being used in another way. Anointing with oil was actually also described in that, that, that story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan and, and the man who was injured and was anointed with oil, not as a ceremony, but as medicinal help. And so perhaps this is calling us to not just pray, but you go to doctors, and there's a real danger, you know, in that extreme view sometimes where people refuse to go to doctors because we're just going to pray. So individuals should pray. Spiritual leaders should pray. 
But what else? Verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you're on the email prayer chain, you may notice there's a lot of physical concerns. Sometimes I think, oh, I wish we could be more personal and talk about and ask prayer for, for things that are more spiritual, if you will, more personal, kind of the real issues that are really bugging us sometimes, and that's, that, they're both appropriate. But I get it in a broad sense where it's going out there to, to, to an email. It's, we should be praying about one another's illnesses. And God does work. There, have, there are stories in Open Door Bible Church of how God has healed. I can introduce you to some people. We should be praying for one another. But what's this about confess your sins to one another and pray for one another? Is this saying that uh, sickness is because of sin? Well, in one sense, all sickness is because of sin. Blame Adam for that. It's a sinful world, and we're all on the path to death, so we're not all going to get over everything. But this seems to suggest that there is sometimes that sin issues are responsible for some sickness. Uh, Who doesn't know someone who died because of drug use, alcoholism, STDs, gluttony, reckless driving. There's all some sin issues that are tangled in our physical. It doesn't mean that everyone, every, every physical at all. It doesn't mean that at all. But just, we should be praying about whatever is going on without judgment. In fact, in fact verse 15, where it says, uh, the sick person, you will make the sick person well. That word for sick is a little bit different. And it's actually the word for exhaustion or weariness in addition to physical things. And I wonder if he meant to use it because he knows that sometimes it's just stress. Can stress make you sick? Who hasn't had a doctor tell you, are you under a lot of stress? <laughs> it does affect your immune system or whatever. Basically, we're a mess, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And we should be connected enough to one another that we are praying about those things for one another. Without blame, oh, it's probably this sin in your life. That, on the other hand, to not, well, I didn't do anything wrong. But rather just acknowledge we are trying to function as followers of Christ in a broken world and we should, James is saying, stop hiding all of the problems and begin talking about them with each other and praying for each other. And that's what the body of Christ was meant to do. But you won't do that if you stay isolated. You won't do that if you stay distant, disconnected. You won't talk about worries and anxieties if you don't trust people. You won't talk about your anger issues or your addictions or any of these things unless you know people and there's a mutual trust. I think this whole series of thinking of the one another's is calling us into closer relationships.
it's scary sometimes and yet that's what the body is about everyone who's uh, part of a family thinking of natural families now understands selfishness versus selflessness every parent especially you understand selflessness once, once that baby comes home you are giving 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 cleaning cooking shopping training disciplining driving paying school fees forever going to work to not mostly earn money to buy stuff for yourself but to, to pay for a roof over your head and food and, and all the essentials and see if there's something left over and so if, if, you're, if you've been a part of a family and you're supporting a family you do know something about selflessness and I applaud every parent who lives that way does that mean that you have pretty well conquered what Jesus said when he said wash one another's feet what Paul said when he said in love serve one another in other words can your family be your whole ministry your family is a ministry your family matters but it's interesting in the New Testament that there are only rare places where it talks about caring for your family natural family I wonder if it's because it really does kind of go without saying. Even unbelievers care for their family. The animal world cares for their family. Everybody knows you give selflessly to your family. You don't have to even talk too much about that. But on that list we have back there of all the one another's, on the, there are some 60 times we are called to care about one another in the church because that's where it's harder the family where we must practice selflessness is like the practice field I wonder if the church is the playing field because we need to take and transfer that selflessness that we give to our children grandchildren there's just you know what wouldn't we do for that we have to transfer that to the body of Christ and it's harder but perhaps the reason there's so much emphasis, the reason the church is such a big deal to the Lord is because there are so many people who have come from families with missing pieces, families that maybe weren't healthy. They're good in this way, but they were hard in that way. And, and there's, who's going to care for those who don't have the ideal family that you'd like to have or that you're trying to help produce? That's why we have to have one another. Because what God does in the body of Christ is that he pulls together everybody with all of their healthy and unhealthy backgrounds and missing pieces and this problem and this strength and he throws us all together and there is this network of people that if they are all functioning, they begin to serve these needs for one another and the body of Christ is built up to do what? It's purpose of making disciples of all nations. And the reason that doesn't happen so many times, our purpose of reaching is because we are not strong in our connection with one another. So I trust that these passages and these studies have helped to stimulate our willingness to connect, connect closer, or maybe 
connect again to the body of Christ to be used in each other's lives. A couple of final evaluation questions. Number one, involvement. Am I involved with believers the way I sense God wants me to be? You have the Spirit of God. I don't know what that is. Am I involved the way I sense? What next step is God showing me? Is there like, hmm, I should. And what obstacle or excuse must I address to connect with other believers more personally? What have we said? What have we thought? What have we felt is keeping us from the connections we should have? Number two, this issue we looked at today, selflessness. Do I care about others and serve as God wants me to? What attitude problem has God shown me? Is there something that that the Spirit touched you with? Like, I just don't think that way, do I? And then, what act of service is God prompting in me because attitudes are not authentic until they are seen in actions? What acts of service might there be that God is moving you toward? Christ came to earth because... We were his priority. We are never more like Christ than when others become our priority. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son in complete love for the world. That whoever would believe in him and what he accomplished by his death and resurrection would not perish, but would have eternal life. Thank you for that incredible truth pray for each one here that we would have embraced, trusted in what you have done on the cross and proven when you rose again as our only solution to sin. Thank you for then joining us to yourself, that we are truly a new creature in Christ, but then thank you for joining us to one another as the body of Christ. Help us to make that connection real, authentic, and personal and active. We trust you, Lord, just to continue to work in our church family, that we would grow in our grace towards you, but also in our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.